All right. So today we're going to be talking about the ministry of Jesus. And I would say that the ministry of Jesus was pretty darn successful, wouldn't you say? Uh, so he only had a physical ministry, like in his body, walking on the earth for three years. He started when he was 30 years old, and then he ended his physical ministry on the earth in the body at age 33. I mean, that's it. Three years of ministry. But look how effective it is here. 2,000 years later, every continent on earth... Uh, has believers in it, has people affected by that ministry. We even said, let's start counting time from his birth. That's how significant he was. He had a very successful ministry. Uh, how would we describe that ministry? What would you say his ministry was? Um, well, we can um, look and see how Jesus describes it in this super interesting drop the mic scene in uh, Luke Four. In fact, if you turn to Luke 4, just stay there. I've got more Bible verses than any Bible teacher will tell you is wise to use during a teaching. Um, I am different. What can I say? So uh, stay in this, even though I'm going to be jumping all over the place, um, because every point I make, I'm going to keep going to this verse. So on verse 18 and 19, that every point is going to go right back to there. So you might as well stay there. But let me go ahead and read this whole thing, um, starting at, oh, I should open my notes. I forgot to do that. All right. Starting at verse 14. Then Jesus returned. This is the beginning of his ministry, really early on. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power, Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So he gets up there. You know, you're allowed to do this. You're allowed to, on Sabbath, on synagogue, you come up and you pick one of the scrolls or they hand you the scroll for the daily reading. And then you can pick a spot and then you can like give an exhortation based on what you're reading. So this is what Jesus does. He comes up, he takes a scroll, he finds Isaiah 61, he opens it up and he, and he reads it word for word. He reads verbatim. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. What? What? What kind of teaching is this? All right, so then let's, let's look at this. So, Talk about, see, I said drop the mic moment. That is, a, that is like the ultimate drop the mic moment in history. There's one more that's a little more significant. That's really, I mean, it, it's the cross. It's like, oh, devil, you thought you won, but guess what? It's over! Anyway, I'm a kid's pastor. So Jesus sits down, right? He goes up, he reads it. Plus, you've got to understand, when he's speaking, 
It's not just words. It's the words of God. And he's reading the words of God. So you've got like double word of God happening here. They can feel the presence of God. It's not just people hearing something read from a book. They're experiencing God before them, God over them. This is pretty powerful. It's shaking some of them to their boots, I imagine. And so he says these words and he sits down. It says, all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them, still sitting. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Bam. This is what Jesus picks to announce what his ministry is. This is the scripture he picks. This this is a prophecy from the book of Isaiah talking about the coming Messiah. And uh, it's what he chooses. Let me just read it again real quick. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So let's break this down. So the first thing it says, he has anointed me. So we got to see what does anointed mean. So um, in Hebrew, the word for anointed is mashak. Um, and because Jesus is, quote, Jesus is probably reading the Hebrew scriptures right there from Isaiah. He's probably reading it in Hebrew. I don't know if they translate it to Aramaic or what, but the Hebrew word, the original in Isaiah 61 is mashak, which just means um, set apart by the application of oil. It actually literally means like rubbed, like rubbed on. You're getting mashaked, <laughs> um, putting oil, because that's what they did uh, when God would set apart kings or priests I can't remember if he did it with prophets, but he definitely did it with kings and priests. And so what they would do is they would take them and they'd like put oil on their head and it would represent the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you because you have been chosen for a specific purpose. So they would mashak you with oil, setting you apart. This is the set apartness um, because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Um, it is the root word of Mashiach, which is Hebrew for Messiah. Um, which means the set-apart one. So that's, that's, uh, that's in Hebrew. But in Greek, here in Luke 4.18, if you were to be reading one of the ancient manuscripts, this is all written in Greek. So the root word here is actually, it sounds a little more familiar. It's ekrisen, from which we get the English word christened, and which is the root word of Christos, where we get Christ. So Messiah Christ, it's the same exact word, just different languages. It both means anointed one, set apart, Holy Spirit's upon you. So it says Jesus is set apart um, by the application of the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit, set apart, chosen by God to do something. So what is it he is called to do? So it says the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So let's talk about that first thing that he says, bringing good news to the poor. Now, what kind of good news for the poor did he have? You hear good news for the poor, it must mean he's coming to bring wealth to the poor. But, you know, being a disciple of Jesus was not a very profitable business. Um, In fact, at least one of the disciples were fairly wealthy uh, when he joined, and he had to give up all that money. So it I don't think he's saying, hey, my good news to the poor is you're going to be rich. So let's see what Jesus actually says. In Matthew 5.3 on the Sermon of the Mount, one of the first things he says to the crowds is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
This is the good news for the poor. You guys get access to the kingdom of heaven. What is that? What does that mean? Um, well, for one, I think it means, like, never mind so much about all this temporal stuff that falls apart, where moth and rust destroy. You may gain some money. You may lose some money. You may gain money and not lose money and be unhappy. Never mind about all that stuff that doesn't satisfy because you have access to the kingdom of heaven, to the eternal, everlasting. And yes, you will have physical stuff uh, in the eternal that just lasts forever, you know, streets of gold and everything you ever need and all that. But more than that, you have the kingdom of heaven itself. What does that mean? You have access to this eternal thing. You are part of something wonderful. So no matter what happens, with your finances here, you have access to the eternal forever. No need to worry about this stuff. Let's worry about the eternal because this is what we are a part of. Because, like I said, even the rich can be poor in spirit. And the same good news that Jesus proclaims to the rich as to the poor is you have access to the kingdom of heaven through the blood of Christ. But it's not just the stuff, in fact, it's hardly at all the stuff of the kingdom of heaven that gets us excited. That's not the greatest benefit. The greatest benefit of getting the kingdom of heaven is getting the king of heaven. Getting the king of heaven personally. Getting access to the kingdom of heaven means you have access to the king of heaven. And when you realize that that is what we were made for, that is the ultimate satisfaction, then you really don't care about whether or not you're struggling under you know, financial burdens because you can be set free inside because you are in relationship with the eternal King of heaven. In fact, Psalms 34, 25, the psalmist says about having access to the kingdom of heaven, he says, whom do I have in heaven but you? You're it. Like, yeah, streets of gold, whatever. You, I got you forever. And it says, and with you, I desire nothing on earth. I am so satisfied, as Alan preached at youth group, last youth group, I am so satisfied in Jesus that, uh, you know, this, this stuff isn't even desirable to me anymore. That is good news for the poor. Let me make one more point uh, in this good news to the poor message. It's a whole Bible story that I love so much. Luke 5, 1 through 11. One day as Jesus was standing on the lake of this place I never quite know how to say, Gennesaret, Gennesaret, Gennesaret. It's Hebrew, right? So they don't, maybe it's not a Hebrew name, I don't know. Whatever, that place. It's what? That works. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, 
Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats on shore. Here we go. Hold on. Before I read this last phrase, what is Simon's job? What is his profession? He's a fisherman. He was not catching any fish. He was not able to do his livelihood, to bring home the bacon. Well, he's Jewish. He wouldn't bring home the bacon. But, <laughs> um, right? So what does Jesus do for him in his ministry to the poor? He gives him, like, incredible wealth. Like, this is a resource that he could sell for loads of money. Now let me read the last phrase. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. They left that catch of fish and followed Jesus. What? It's, you know, that's the good news to the poor. You can either wait for your blessing or you could just hang with the blesser. All right. The next thing uh, actually uh, is in some of your translations and is not in some of your translations. And there's some debate between uh, scholars about, you know, did, did Jesus omit this line from Psalm 61? Because some ancient manuscripts from 1900 years ago uh, include this next line and some don't. I'm going to say, never mind those brainiac scholars. It, it doesn't matter because the point is the same. Um, the phrase here that is in some of your translations and not in some of your translations is, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. All right, and the reason that there is a debate over it is just, like I said, it's just because it's in some and it's in some not, but here's the reason why it doesn't matter, why the, why the debate doesn't matter. Um, first of all, we know what Jesus is quoting. He's quoting Isaiah 51. Hey, look, it's really easy to get to. We can read it for ourselves. In Isaiah 51, it says the next line, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Furthermore, even if Jesus, for some reason, did um, omit that line as he was saying it out loud, it still doesn't matter because if you look at everything else he says, tell me this isn't binding up the heart, right? Um, good news to the poor. If you are poor and Jesus is bringing you good news, isn't that going to bind your heart up a little bit? Let's say that uh, you're a captive and he's come to tell you you're released. Isn't that going to bind your heart up a little bit? It's not going to start to bring healing. The blind will see. Oh my gosh. If I was completely blind and I got my sight, I think my heart would start to heal. The oppressed set free. That's going to bind up the heart. And the time of the Lord's favor has come. That's the biggest one. My heart's starting to feel good already. <laughs> Um, let's see. Yep. All right. I like that the, the Hebrew word, it literally does translate to bind up the brokenhearted. Some of the translations translate it to heal the brokenhearted, which is, you know, it means the same thing, but I like it when they use the words bind, which is the actual translation. If you look at the Hebrew bind, because, uh, it means that it's not always just an instantaneous because Sometimes for the brokenhearted, we don't want, like, you know, we hate clowns. You know, we hate the happy, turn, turn off that dance music. You know, you feel that. What you want is comfort. You want to be comforted. You want to be held in, 
in the arms. You want to heal. You know, there's a, there's a healing process that happens. And binding up is that gentle healing process. It's not like, oh, you just turned to me. Bam, now you can jump up and rejoice if your world's falling apart. It's no, you get to experience the goodness of God's comfort as he begins to heal you. He, he binds up that broken heart so that it can heal with his gentle touch and he will bring you in. Uh, we have uh, more evidence of this uh, throughout the scripture, such as uh, Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforting. It is a blessing. It's actually a blessing to be able to mourn because in that case we get to experience his comfort that we might not otherwise experience. Um, in Isaiah 61, if you were to continue reading that passage that Jesus is quoting, it goes on to say, that his mission is to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Who here ever feels like their life just feels like a pile of ashes? You know, in modern secular English, we use a different word that's not polite to use in church. But here, um, sometimes you just feel like you've just got a bunch of ashes just all over you. He says, no, he's, he's going to give you a crown of beauty. He's going to give you the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of despair. This is the ministry of Jesus to bring healing to the brokenhearted. And part of that healing is discovering uh, our identity in him. I mean, look at his disciples. He picked a bunch of uh, screwballs and... Uh, they were all so much like us. And uh, here's something very interesting he says to them right before he goes to the cross in John 16, 22 through 23. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. What he's saying is you're going to have sorrow because they, they didn't even know he's going to the cross. He keeps telling them, but they're not listening. But he's going to the cross and they're going to have incredible sorrow. But he then says, guess what? When you see me again, I'm giving you the same identity that I have before the Father. It says you're not going to have to ask me for stuff. You don't have to. You could just ask him because of what I'm doing for you right now. And be, do you understand this identity that you are stepping into Peter, James, John, you guys, you bunch of crazy guys, um, you are stepping into the fullness of God. Like you can be right here in the same standing that I am with the Father, and you can ask him for stuff. That's incredible. Like, there's just too much to say on that topic, so I'll just, you can meditate on that the rest of your life if you want. All right, the next thing it says here, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. You know, freedom for prisoners. Did Jesus come to make sure his disciples never went to jail? No, quite the opposite. In fact, if you became a disciple of Jesus back then and in most of the world today, there's a pretty good chance you're going to jail. You know, we have it so different in America. We are blessed uh, thank you in part to D-Day, you know, but um, we are this unique and rare exception on the earth right now where we don't have to be persecuted in that sort of way. But, you know, all of Jesus' disciples, all of his 12, you know, 
imprisoned constantly. Paul imprisoned constantly. You know, so many of the, the letters that he wrote to the churches in the New Testament, he wrote from prison. And in so many of those letters, he talks about how he, he like feels bad for them. He has compassion for them. He's weeping for them, praying God's mercy on them when he's the one who is in chains and they're the one who are out free. Do you see? This good news to the prisoners that the captives will be set free has nothing to do with physical bonds or bars. It has to do with freedom inside. And Paul was absolutely free in Christ. He was in those chains singing worship music with Silas there in the dungeon. He was set free and nobody could chain him up even if they put bars in front of him and chains on his wrists. This is the good news to the captives, to the prisoners. It's so good. It doesn't matter what this world does to us. And Jesus even makes promises that, you know, you follow me, there's good chances that you're going to end up in prison because the world's going to hate you. It's just how it goes. Galatians 3, 23 talks about the sort of prison that we were all under before we applied the blood of Jesus, before he applied the blood of Jesus. It says, but the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus. Guys, I know what being a captive to sin is like. And I know what being set free from sin is like. And it's, a, it's everything. It's a world of a difference. Zechariah 9, 11 through 12 says, Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood... I will free your prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who still have hope. I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. What is this waterless dungeon that he is referring to? I don't think he's speaking metaphorically here. I think he's talking about hell, straight up, the lake of fire, this waterless dungeon that we are all destined to because of, we are all born with sin, but Jesus is good news. His ministry is that he is going to set the captives free. So when we turn to Jesus, we are set free from this waterless dungeon. The prisoners come back from the dead, come back out of the waterless prison. It doesn't belong to us. It's not for us. We got something better for us. Come, all you prisoners who still have hope, it says. Romans 8, 5, I'm sorry, 15 through 17 says, the spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought you out of your, uh, sorry, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, that we may also share in his glory. So you see, we are no longer slaves. We are not slaves to fear. We're not slaves to anything. We are completely, in fact, not only are we set free, but we are given the identity as a son of God. You are taken from a place of a prisoner to all things, a prisoner to my sin, a prisoner on the, uh, what's it called, the longest mile? What's it called, the, where you, you're waiting to go to death row? Death row, you know, we're sitting on death row. All of us, hell is the death row at the end that we're, you know, walking towards. And he says, nope, 
Not only am I taking you out of that, I'm making you my child. You are now a son of the king. Total transition. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the ministry that he has. That was prophesied way back in Isaiah. And then he gave us a beautiful picture. I'm not going to read it, but you guys might have heard the story of Barabbas. So they took Jesus. Uh, they don't know, like, why, why is everybody yelling to have him crucified? I can't see anything he did. But they have this tradition where once a year... Um, it's so dumb. They're like, all right, I got a couple guys up here. They're all guilty. Like, well, this guy doesn't seem very guilty, though, so whatever. Uh, anyway, the tradition says uh, we're going to release one guy. Who do you want to release? Jesus, who I don't think did anything, or Barabbas, who's a murderer. And everybody's like, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. He's like, okay, you could have Barabbas. Don't come complaining to me when he kills your mom. Anyway, Barabbas is a picture of us. Because we are guilty. We're the guilty ones standing next to the innocent one. And Jesus takes our place. He goes to the cross and we get set free. Now, Barabbas, at that point, I don't know what happened to him. The Bible doesn't say. Maybe he looked at Jesus and was like, dang, maybe he changed his life. You know, that's what, that's what I want to do when I see what Jesus did for me. All right, the next thing that it says is uh, he, uh, that he will proclaim the blind will be set free. So what do you think that means, right? That, that obviously is spiritual, not physical, right? Wrong! It's physical! Let's read it. Matthew 15, 30 through 31. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet. And he healed them, for real, like physical suffering here in the natural the people were amazed and they, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. This is available in the ministry of Jesus, real life healing. But it also works spiritually, which is good, because we were all blind. And let's look at that a little bit. In Revelation, uh, Jesus is addressing a very lukewarm church in Laodicea, and he says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, uh, white uh, and uh, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see so he come to open the eyes physically, and he's come to open the eyes spiritually. This is the ministry of Jesus. The next thing it says is that the oppressed will be set free. Oppression now. What do you think that meant to the Israelites at the time? Oppression. What sort of oppression were they feeling? They were feeling some pretty intense government oppression from the Romans. And they were all quite certain that, uh, that the Messiah was going to come and deliver them from the political oppression of their day. But we're like, oh, the Romans are long gone. Obviously, this means my unfair boss, right? Jesus, the good news, he's going to set me free from my, my unfair boss, or whatever the case may be. But um, the truth, truth is, yes, there will come a day, as prophesied in too many passages to even mention, where Jesus comes to the earth 
and he just ends all oppression in the physical. It's gonna happen. So don't get in the oppressor camp because bad news for you. But, and it's gonna be just like it was in Egypt with great miracles to set the oppressed free. It's gonna be a beautiful thing, unless you're an oppressor, it sucks for you. But, for now, all right, uh, two things, two things. That he's, here's, here's what it means, what I believe it means, that he is setting the oppressed free. One, he's going to take oppressors, like me, and he's going to convert us into healers and lovers. And that's going to start to bring an end to oppression in itself. Right? 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 16 Paul is telling Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul is saying, remember what I used to be like? I was like the ultimate oppressor. I would see the Christians and I made it my hobby, like my mission in life to hunt them down and imprison them and sentence them to death. And I would sit back and watch. You can read it in the book of Acts. This is what he did. Ultimate oppressor Paul until Jesus got a hold of him. And now he's saying, look, I'm the worst of sinners, but he has made me a person to display the mercy and the patience of Jesus. So no longer am I oppressing, I'm now a healer and I'm a lover. And that's, what, that's part of how uh, he ends oppression is by changing the oppressors into healers and lovers. And then we see a similar story, Luke 19, one through 10, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your home today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Mm, Jesus, what are you doing hanging out with sinners? Thank God he does. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Zacchaeus is a scam artist. Uh, if any of you guys hasn't watched The Chosen, I recommend you watch a fantastic show. Uh, it shows, it goes into detail what a tax collector's life might have been like. Uh, you basically got to sell out your religion, you got to sell out your people, and then you got to work for the oppressive government to be a tax collector. But you also have free reign to be like the sheriff of Nottingham from the Disney's version of Robin Hood and just completely scam everybody. And that was commonplace amongst tax collectors. And that is exactly what Zacchaeus was doing. I guess he was compensating for his height. He was uh, scamming everybody for their money. And then he has an encounter with Jesus, and the oppressor becomes the healer. He goes out, and not only does he return everybody's money, but he blesses them. He gives them four times as much. So not only does he take the oppressors and turn them into healers and lovers, but he sets us free from the oppression of the enemy 
of the devil and the demons who oppress us with guilt and fear and shame and worthlessness and worry and stress and regret and so on, um, which is what we actually see happen to Paul and to Zacchaeus and countless others who have encountered Jesus, including countless others in this room. We encounter Jesus and we receive freedom from the oppression of these things that we struggle with and then it, it transforms us, so then we're now giving. So he has, is declaring, this is the ministry of Jesus, that the oppressed will be set free. Then it says, and this is the last thing that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. This is the year of the Lord's favor. What is so significant about that being part of the ministry of Jesus? What does it mean? Perhaps too long? We've been thinking that we're not good enough for God. Well, guess what? You're wrong. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Technically, you're not wrong. Nobody's good enough for God. But because of Jesus, he made you good enough if you turn to him. This is the year of the Lord's favor. It doesn't matter what you've done. This is the year of the Lord's favor. He's not mad at you. Turn to him. It's the year of the Lord's favor. From Jesus' own mouth, the most popular scripture in the world, for God so loved the world. This is Jesus saying this. Sometimes we forget that it was Jesus speaking, when, but it's him. These are the words of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. You might be oppressed, but you can be free. You might be on that road to death, but you can be brought over into life. Jesus says, don't be condemned. I came here not to condemn, but to take you who are condemned and make you not condemned, to bring you into freedom, freedom from oppression. So how many here have experienced the ministry of Jesus? So my question is how? He only had a three-year ministry. He's been gone for 2,000 years. How did you experience the ministry of Jesus? Teresa! Yes! From Federico. That's the right answer. It is, actually, in part. The right answer is because people have been chosen by God to continue the ministry of Jesus. And then he has given us tools like the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. So the ministry of Jesus continues to this day through us. All right, there are two questions that are very important questions, and this is like the crux of the whole teaching. These two questions have the same answer. First question, well, it kind of gave the answer away already, but who cares? <laughs> how can people continue the ministry of Jesus? Second question, how can I still struggle as a Christian? I thought the ministry of Jesus was to set us free from oppression and all this, but I am often given into uh, oppression, and I'm often allowing myself to be re-bound uh, to certain sins and stuff. So I thought that getting saved was supposed to take care of this. 
So what is the answer to those two questions? How come I still stress over finances? How come I don't walk in the fullness of Christ? And then how come people continue the ministry of Jesus? How does that still happen? Um, and if you think of the story of Paul and Zacchaeus, both Paul's story and Zacchaeus' story that we went over, you can see the answer is this. Freely you have received, freely give. Freely you have received, freely give. Ah, I'm still walking in bondage. What did you receive freedom for that? We have a daily choice to receive from Jesus. Lord, I receive your freedom from this. And then you're going to get your freedom. You don't have to stay bound to anything. Jesus made it possible. Or we can ignore that and uh, not even go to Jesus on a regular basis to have him perform his ministry to you. See, when he died on the cross and you believed in him, you're good to go in the eyes of God. But if you don't go to him every day to receive his ministry, you're going to have a hard time in this life. But you can allow him to minister to you. All right, so that, ver that word, that phrase, freely you have received, freely give, comes from this uh, passage, Matthew 10, 7, 8. So Jesus, he sends out the 12 disciples and he says, go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cure those with leprosy, and cast out demons. Give as freely as you have received. What did, they, what did they receive that they were able to give such extraordinary gifts? Like raising the dead. Oh my goodness. What in the world could you receive that allows you to raise the dead? Yeah, I mean, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God himself. God has given himself to you. We have received God. God's on our side. We have everything. He's oh, my goodness. <laughs> now, side note, think about this. Among those 12 that Jesus sent out to heal the sick and raise the dead and do all this stuff was Judas Iscariot. Judas flipping Iscariot. <laughs> he picked him. He picked, Jesus chose Judas. He chose him. He picked that guy. I want that guy. There was a lot of awesome people there who really know the word of God. And Jesus chose Judas Iscariot to be on his team. And he chose Judas Iscariot to go out and to perform these things, to bring the kingdom of heaven to people. What does that tell me? It tells me that ain't none of you too bad to be chosen by God to fulfill this verse. He wants you to bring the kingdom of God. He chose Judas and he loved him. It was Judas's own choice to throw it all away. It's also your choice. If you want to throw it away, you can. He lets you. Judas did, but don't. This is dumb. It's stupid. All right. Acts 3, 1 through 9. And then also 16. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part... Well, I'm just, I'll summarize. Basically, these guys, who did I say? Peter and John, they're hanging out of the temple. There's a dude who's been lame from birth, and he's begging for money. And like I said, it's not very profitable being a disciple of Jesus. So they couldn't help him in that regard. They say, silver and gold, have I not? But what I do have, I gladly give to you. Get up and walk. What? That's way better than like a handful of money, right? Imagine that. Imagine there's some stoned homeless guy out here who's like got a broken leg or whatever. And uh, he's like, hey, man, give me some money. I promise it's for food. And uh, 
and you're like, I only have a debit card. How about I give you what I do have, you know, get up and walk. Bam! And he's healed, right? It sounds crazy, but this stuff happens. This happens. We just have to, we have to receive it first. And the more we receive freely, the more we are able to give freely. The more you understand what you have in Jesus, the more you're able to give. And the ministry of Jesus continues. Second yes. Corinthians 5, 16 through 21 says, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Hold on, listen to this. God, he's the one doing it. He reconciled us to himself through Christ. And then what did he give us? He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, he committed to you, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in this passage, what was received in order for us to give, just based on these few sentences. Sight, first of all, it says, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We used to, but now we have sight. We can see clearly. So we have been given sight to see from the heavenly realms in the heavenly way. Um, next is uh, the passing of the old them. You don't have to hold on or worry about whatever sins you've done because it's dead, it's gone, it has passed away. So we have been given a beautiful death, death of the things we don't like in us. Forget all your shame, let it go away. We received the passing of the old us and we received a new Life, it says, the old is gone, the new is here. I actually like in some translations, it says, behold, the new is here, which means, like, actually look at it. Pay attention that the new is here. It, like, look, get it, hold on to it. Um, a new life, and then, of course, reconciliation, being brought into the purpose, the meaning of our lives, the reason we exist the reason that so many people don't experience the fullness of life is because we don't step into this reconciliation made available to us to be connected with God. Um, forgiveness and a mission were sent out. So we're given all this stuff so that we can do this stuff, so that it can spread. Everything we're getting, we're freely receiving so we can freely give. Reconciliation coming here, reconciliation going out. And then I'm just gonna skim through some verses uh, really quick that say the same thing. I, here's this one real quick. This one I'm going to read the whole thing. John 17, 18 through 23. Jesus is praying. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they may be truly sanctified. So Jesus sanctified that we're sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for all who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me 
that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved me even though, uh, even as you have loved me. So we are sent on a mission by Jesus. It's very clear here. It's his own prayer to God the Father. And what are we given in these verses? We're, getting, we're given the love and the unity that already exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That same love that they have for each other, that same unity that they have amongst each other is offered to us. That's what we are freely given so that we can go out and provide this for others. We can provide unity for others and we can provide love for others. And, and we are given the mes- message again to go out in order to make Jesus famous. Um, and then, in, I won't read this, but I'll, I'll summarize it in John 20, 21 through 23. Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection. He breathes on them, and he says, uh, go forgive. Whoever you forgive will be forgiven. Whoever you don't forgive won't be forgiven. So uh, they can forgive because they have been forgiven. Freely receive, freely give. You've been forgiven. Now you can give forgiveness. Um, 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. Right? 1 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those with any troubles uh, with the comfort we ourselves received. We have freely received. We will freely give comfort. As I said, it's a daily, even hourly choice to choose what we are going to receive. Now, when we don't choose to receive constantly from God, then we start to experience all, all that. The chains start slipping back on. The, the oppression, we start slipping under the oppression again. But it doesn't have to be that way. So now, now that we know all that, let's relook at that, Psalms, or that, uh, that Isaiah 61 passage. Because now we can see very clearly, very blatantly, that Jesus has given you his very own ministry on the earth. You have been called to continue the ministry of Jesus. So what is your ministry on this planet? It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. Because you've been anointed. The Spirit of God is on you. He's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is, this is you. This is your mission. It's the mission of Jesus that he's partnering with you to carry out. Now, if you want to be a part of this, if you are not yet a part of this, if you realize that maybe you've taken a long time in your life and never actually accepted Jesus and let him continue to pour these blessings on you so that you can then give them out to the world, well, you can. You can be saved right here and right now, and it's really ridiculously easy because Jesus did all the work. You don't got to do nothing but this one little tiny thing to be saved. Look, let me read it to you. It says this, John 5, 24. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me. This is Jesus speaking, obviously. Let me read it again. Now that you know it's Jesus. I tell you the truth. 
Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. This is yours. It can be yours right now. All you got to do is that. Just believe in God who sent Jesus. Believe that it's all real. So I'm going to pray, and you are welcome to pray along with this, and you can you can ask for God to save you right now, and then you can enter into this, and then you can walk in power. And then all of us who are not like me, man, I wish I was walking in more power. It's because I keep letting those chains go on me, and I'm okay with it sometimes. I don't want to be okay with it any longer. So I'm going I'm to pray for us, and you guys can uh, uh, pray along in your hearts as I pray. God, I do acknowledge that you are real, that you are good, that you love. I see it here in the scriptures and I believe it with my heart. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that you came to die for our sins and to set us free from bondage and captivity and that you have good news for the poor and all this stuff and that you have given us identity. So I accept that identity, Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Help me to live a full and rich life in you as I now commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Yeah, that's good. You can continue clapping. He did a great job. Um, It's, it's really, you did a great job. <laughs> you really did. Um, it's pretty interesting when you look at that. When Jesus came on the scene, so to speak, and this was the big deal with the opening the scroll to Isaiah. But he ended it kind of with a, a reminder, right? Because the Great Commission, right? That was the Great Commission. He was coming back around and telling his disciples and us that, remember that thing I said about Isaiah? <laughs> that I read about me? and us because we're part of that commission. I want you to do that. I want you to set the captives free, right? I want you to heal people and take oppression off of these people and to tell them the good news that they don't have to be in bondage and suffer, right? So, Lord, I just pray for your people that they would walk in this Isaiah 61 that Jesus laid down the gauntlet and he gave it to us to set the captives free, to preach the good news, to heal the sick and the brokenhearted. Help us to walk in that, Father. I pray for boldness in your people this week, that they would not be afraid to do it, that out of their love for you and their love for mankind, they would walk in the gospel and share the good news with those that need it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.